Welcome to The Experience Makers, a brand new podcast series from Cognify, the WPP marketing technology consultancy. I'm Joe Milne, I'm a journalist, and once a month I'm going to be reimagining customer experience with Cognify and their guests from across the marketing technology industry. We're going to delve into everything from what today's consumer really wants, right through to technology that feeds the experience economy and digital transformation. Whatever stage of the digital journey you're on, if you're in business today, this one is for you. Today we're going to be talking about what's driving the experience economy and I'm really excited to be joined by Lee Gammons, who's the Chief Growth Officer at Cognified, and Jamie Brighton, Head of Product and Industry Marketing for EMEA at Adobe. What would be great, guys, if you could maybe give me a bit of an intro as to who you are, what you do and why you're interested in this topic. Lee, why don't we start with you? Well, it's a question my mum asked me all the time, to be honest, but um, so I'm a Chief Growth Officer for Cognified. And the reason I'm in, interested in the experience economy really is because you know we've gone through an age of marketers just doing marketing for marketing's sake. Now it's getting linked to more business value. And so actually the experience economy is a way of linking that business value back to the experiences that we're trying to create and how we kind of monetize and make sure that we're doing it in a right in the right way really. Okay. Right. And what about you, Jamie? Tell me a little bit about what you do. Yeah. So um, at Adobe, I head up the product and industry marketing group in EMEA, which means I'm specifically responsible for our go-to-market around all of our digital marketing tech. So um, the experience economy uh, you know, is kind of critically important to what we're thinking about um, with our customers. Um, we've been looking at over the last few years how the rise of customer experience and the importance of the customer experience. Uh, a lot of the research that is out there and that we've been doing as well um, shows us that it's it is a battleground. It's then you know it was going to be the next battleground, and we're now right in that um, place, that space. I think um, where you've got to get the customer experience right, and if you don't, someone's going to go and you know and engage with your competition. So all of the organisations that we're working with are talking about customer centricity, putting the customer first, and they need technology to um, you know to help them to do that. So that's kind of critically important for us. Amazing. So, okay, so this episode we're going to be talking about the experience economy, what's driving it. But maybe let's start with what does it actually mean? Can you maybe give me a bit of a definition of experience economy? Yeah, I mean, I um, I think the, the term experience economy is pretty interesting. I was actually doing a bit of research specifically for this discussion and um, seems like it was coined back in 98 by somebody writing for the Harvard Business Review. Um, and really explains the kind of evolution of the way in which we've engaged with products, um, going all the way back to the agrarian economy, where uh, and it uses a, this. The, the authors of the paper um, use the kind of illustration of thinking about making a birthday cake, uh, and back in that kind of agrarian economy, we'd have to go out and actually source or create the ingredients that we needed to then go and make the birthday cake. And then we moved into more of an industrial and goods economy, and that meant that we could go and and pay um, you know a few pennies and actually have the ingredients pre-mixed made it easier for us. And then we moved into a services economy where effectively we can just go to the store and actually buy the entire cake pre-made for us. And now we're in this concept of um, the experience economy where we're actually outsourcing not just the creation of the cake, but all of the things that go around the cake and the experience that we would want to deliver at, at say, a birthday party. So um, there's a you know we've seen this kind of progression, and I think it's you know it's interesting that that research was written um, you know, as far back as 1998 because these concepts are still you know crucially important for all of the brands and you know the, the marketers that we're um, working with uh, today um, you know differentiating yourself through the experience because products have become commoditized is crucial 
um, in this you know in this experience economy. I was going to say the new experience economy, but as I say, it's been around for a while. I think we've just seen um, a greater recognition that brands need to be think you know organisations need to be thinking about the customer experience and what that actually means for the end consumer. It's interesting you use the, this birthday cake um, analogy because what was going through my mind when you were talking was well two things. First of all, it sounds like a, 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 an increasing laziness, I suppose, in the, from the part of the consumer. But also, I'm thinking about recent trends um, where you know when you think about like mindfulness, for instance, where people are going you know inverted commas going back to baking because it feels good to actually make something from nothing. Um, so when you're thinking about you know what the experience economy means how do you approach it you know is it from a perspective of um how do you make things simpler for people or is it you know if you go back to sort of first principles making a cake can be a really enjoyable thing right it's not just about having the cake so how do you think about what it is that you're actually trying to deliver for the consumer other than just simplicity for instance the i think the way that we would look at it is the you know, you're managing and orchestrating all of those different touch points with any consumer or, or any person that you're trying to deal with. So there's quite a good analogy where it's, this is not a shoe, this is an experience. If you're buying a pair of trainers, you've got, you know, the consideration phase, you might look online, you might buy them in a store, you might do all of those different things. But then if you're buying a pair of trainers, what you're actually trying to do is maybe go running. So you could join a running club, you could buy wearable technology, you could then buy your next pair of trainers so then all of a sudden you've started a chain of events which is creating that kind of well let's call it the experience economy where you're not just buying a product anymore it's transcending that and now you're buying it an experience and you're trying to make sure you monetize that and how do you think about this idea because i think sometimes when we talk about you know the rise of the experience or particularly with respect to millennials millennials want experience um and we say you know consumers have changed is it is it really about consumers changing or is it a change in delivery? I mean, if you go back to any sort of uh, business presentation, you have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And you, you could argue that we're exactly the same as we've always been. So what do we mean when we say that we're kind of shifted into this um, experience economy, as it were? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm quite far from being a millennial, but I still value experiences over, you know, uh, the kind of the raw product. And I think as well, we've seen increasingly consumers, we as consumers are aligning ourselves with brands that share the same kind of purpose or show that they or demonstrate that they show the same kind of purpose or beliefs as as we do, you know, as consumers. Um, I think... Um, the the question here is why are brands thinking about why are organizations thinking about customer experience are they doing it purely to make more money or are they doing it because they're actually putting the customer first mm. um and you know the the idea here is that actually there's a payoff if you do put the customer first you may not see an instant return on that but ultimately you're going to be more effective again you know against your competition in selling your product because Customers are going to align with you. They're going to see value in what you're providing beyond the simple product, the commodity that you're providing, and all of those things that Lee was talking about in terms of the surrounding things that we're providing, the experience that we're providing around the product. I'd say that the, I think it's expectation management is the thing that's changed. So customer expectations are, and if you go through the, you know, the management, that orchestration layer that I was talking about, there's this, you know, you've got to meet customer expectations throughout that. And there's a little room at the top where you can actually try and beat them. But nowadays, I think people are a little bit wary of beating them by too much because then it starts to get to the creepy behavior and stuff like that. And, mm. and before you know it, 
you've beaten expectations so much that customers are driven away from you because you know too much about them and actually you're just trying to push products. So there's a real, real fine line. And actually, I think we've seen a reigning back of a lot of brands to actually meet that. I think just to come back to the actual question that you're asking as well, um, why are brands needing to do this? Well, I think across the board, consumer expectations are rising, Um, you know, and I'm not sure if this is a quote from somebody, but um, I've certainly heard this before, which is we as consumers the expectations that we have for the experience that we get from from any brand that we engage with it, it is established and set that benchmark is set by the single best experience that we have with any brand regardless of the vertical regardless of the industry that that's in regardless if it's completely you know left field from what we're doing on a day to day you know um, in terms of the businesses we're in, engaging with and that's why you know i will i'll sort of attach a warning to this in advance yes it's a cliche to talk about this but the experience that we have with netflix or amazon prime where we can you know pick up a piece of con- a easily find a piece of content through search or through you know personalized recommendations then start engaging with that content on one device and pick that up on another device in a seamless way it doesn't you know until a few years ago um, brands in other industries wouldn't have looked at that and said, well, we need to you know, provide that same level of seamless, frictionless experience. And now, because consumers are demanding that, um, you know, your bank realises that they need to do the same kind of thing. Um, how, so. do you, how do you wrestle, though, between the kind of extra flavourful experience that you know, someone's going to Instagram and tell their friends about versus simply being able to log on your bank and do a really good transfer you know how do you think that brands across the board are sort of getting it right in terms of thinking about the basics and sort of satisfying that what is it that people just actually want to do day to day versus giving that pizzazz and that extra stuff that they won't be able to talk about well i mean this might be a bit of a soundbite answer but i think um, you know, if you're actually truly putting the customer first, then you don't really care about whether it goes viral or people pick it up on the social channels. You're actually, it's just about providing the correct experience for that person at that time. Um, you know, wrap, you know, the product wrapped up in the experience that's right for them. If they have a great experience, they'll talk about it. And, you know, increasingly we are um, motivated to share good experiences regardless of whether they're um, you know, Instagrammable or, mm. you know, there are other platforms that you can use, other social platforms that you can use to talk about great experience, maybe in customer support or, you know, in services like Facebook or Twitter, yeah. um, which, you know, depending on your age and demographic, you may, you know, use more or less of those, but still there's an opportunity. It may not be a visual um, way of doing it, but you can share it, you know, through words. So, you know, when I'm thinking about brands and what they're doing in terms of experience, sometimes it feels a little bit over the top versus Mm. kind of like you actually just want to be able to do things easily, you know? Exactly. And I think some of that surprise and delight factor is the thing that you're you're looking for what you can take too far. I mean, remember when KFC didn't have any chicken anymore and how that was turned into an awesome publicity stunt. They made a joke out of it. And everybody talks about it, but it's actually quite a negative thing. Mm. And those types of, you know, seizing on any type of interaction with your customers a way to make something good out of something bad. So, like, you are genuinely trying to put the customer first and say, you know what, don't come to KFC because we haven't got any chicken, mm. but we will have tomorrow. That's like, it puts a smile on everyone's face. People have a talk about it. And before you know it, you're already doing marketing. You, As you say, as I agree completely with what Jamie's saying. You don't want to go into something thinking that you're going to get tweets, you're going to get likes, you're going to get Instagram posts. You want to go into it thinking this is a good bit of content that people are going to either think about, laugh about and talk about. 
I, I do have a, actually a personal example of that. Um, I was uh, flying with the airline that I've decided to kind of fly with all the time for work. So I have loyalty, was in the lounge, took a picture of the meal that they provided me for free in the lounge. I had just been upgraded, um, which was obviously a great, you know, great perk. Took a photo, tweeted about it. Um, you know, included them in the tweet and talked about how happy I was with the, you know, with the service that I was getting. They responded back to me. We had a, a conversation about my um, sort of loyalty points and status online. And then it could have been disconnected. But and then the very next flight that I took, um, the cabin services leader on the on, on the flight actually came up to me and I wasn't sitting up the front of the plane because it's not where I travel. But he came, you know, halfway down the plane and he introduced himself, you know, said hello, used my name. Asked if there was anything that he could do for me on that particular, you know, flight. Anything that he could do to make the flight better, and it, no one had ever done that before. And so there's a possibility in my mind that that was connected with my interactions with them, you know, on the on, on those social channels. And I think that that's, you know, that whole kind of surprise and delight, and also you know, coming back to all the point. Also that Lee online, was offline as well. Online, right? offline, yeah, but also. You know, is that creepy? No, I don't think that's creepy. I think they've got that data. I expect them to, you know, to use that information in a, you know, in a good way. Um, you could take it too far and be, you know, and use that in a kind of creepy way. But actually, I think that was a great use potentially of the data. And also, it had me questioning: was this an explicit thing based on my interactions, or was it just a great piece of service that they were providing? And that's, you know, again, you know, I don't want to be the the cliche guy on this, but great personalization examples of great personalization are typically the ones that are not in your face and obvious, mm. you know, obviously personalized to you. They're just a relevant experience, or the things that you, the tools, or the information that you need right there and then to make the decision or to get a better experience. So let's. Let's talk about um, how you actually go about doing that sort of thing. I mean, you mentioned data, you mentioned online, offline. Um, you know, in theory, you can come up with lots of different ideas of, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this, this, that and the other. How do how do brands begin to think about, obviously, beyond working out what it is the customer actually wants, which I'm assuming would be the first sort of strategic step, but from an uh, actually going about doing it, thinking about linking up data, thinking about making sure that you've got connectivity between all your different departments. How do you even begin to, to think about that sort of thing? So I think it's actually before figuring out what the customer wants, because to figure out what a customer wants, you need to know what audiences you need to look at. You need to have it linked to a business strategy that makes sense. So there's a few kind of quite, well, they're quite linear steps, but this is where our overarching business strategy and how do we derive value from that within marketing, audiences, all those types of things. And then... It's, it's not easy. I say the businesses that we've seen do it successfully are generally ones that have already got quite fast-moving products. So lots of technology companies, fast-moving consumer goods, they, they're used to packaging things up, getting them out the door quickly. Whereas you look in the automotive sector, where we've got a couple of clients who are really actually leading the way in particularly some of the Adobe technology that we're working with. They've got production cycles of like 10 years. So there's a huge battle going on right now between who's going to get the first proper production electric vehicle versus autonomous driving. And everybody's kind of putting these various bets on on the market. But the business strategy right now is to sell diesel and leaded cars to be able to fuel all those different bets. So the overarching business strategy comes before the customer experience strategy because actually they don't necessarily know what that strategy is going to be down the line. So it's a very, very kind of hard thing to, if, if you could do it, everyone would be able to do it. But the guys who can move around their value chain, chain really quickly are able to get some of those ideas out quickly. You want to test and learn as quick as possible, get things out into the market, and then you'll learn quickly and then do the, do the next best thing, do the next best thing. Because, you know, Twitter was only profitable for the first time a couple of years ago, yet we've been talking about it for however long. That's a really good example of 
you know, sticking with the market. And we've all seen how much Uber's hit, you know, hit the losses recently. They're down one billion on their stock market valuation. That is huge. But they're still investing now in data and technology to be able to dig themselves out of it. They're not trying to cut costs. They're trying to invest to be able to dig out of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. Not something I thought about before, but you're talking about some of the you know, organizations you're working with where there's a really long you know, R&D cycle and takes a long time to bring the product to market. And that's kind of coming, really clashing up against this idea of the real-time economy, not to use, you know, lots of different things. But, you know, increasingly, brands are thinking about how they need to take control of the experience in real time. The context of a customer visit, uh, an interaction, whether that's online or offline, whoever is engaging um, with that um, with that customer, with that your prospect needs to have all of the relevant information available about that prospect that the, that the brand has um, to make a decision around what is the next offer to serve to them or what is the correct um, you know service um, item to, to put in front of them to get them to, to kind of engage and I think technology wise what we're what we're seeing is this move to you know real-time platforms that enable you to um, bring data together from lots of different systems um, to understand the value of the data before you uh, merge it, I think is crucially important and a, and a really important step in the process. If we talk about GDPR, we're seeing, you know, brands have invested a lot in data lakes and, you know, places to actually bring all of that customer data together. But actually, that was a bit of a false yeah, economy or a false strategy because now you can't, you simply can't just dump everything into a data lake and worry about getting some value or w- whether it's going to be worth something in a few years' time. You need to know before you store it because the the liability, the risk that's inherent in that, um, you know, of using customer data and not using it in the right way is kind of critical. So you need that platform of you know of being able to merge data together. Get a view of the the customer, you know, a customer profile, and then be able to kind of action that on whatever channel, whether that's online or offline. So. And a, an example, I think, actually, the because the retail sector, I think, is like bore this burden really hard, right? So we've seen how many administrations and difficulties throughout that, and we've got three or four retail clients, and two have come of it from completely different angles. One, a very very strong brand. A high street presence and they're moving into the online world a lot more they're trying to do all the things that jamie's saying right they're trying to invest in their data invest in their customer profiles to make sure that they're marketing in the right way because they've already got the brand and then we've got another business that's you know really really ambitious um we actually partnered together on this one and um they were mainly a catalog business that moved into the online world but to actually get better brand equity for them, they, they need to have some kind of high street presence. So they're actually putting stores in when they previously didn't have. So for them, because they're not a low-grade fashion retailer, they're, you know, they're, they're upper market than that, they need to have people to be able to interact with their brand in a different way with different experiences if they want to. So two current clients kind of going at it in completely separate ways. And they're both being pretty successful in their own rights, but so many people haven't had the foresight to look across the full customer experience and say, well, I'm actually missing out here and here and here as both businesses have done, and they've kind of kept their head down. And that's why we've seen, I think, so many high street closures and all these types of things that really, you know, really could have been, I'm not I'm not sure they could have been anticipated, but they could have been judged better with the right business strategy underpinning them. It seems like there's a lot of different elements that kind of go into the consideration of how do you use data to then up or better your experience you know so there's everything from how do you uh, design what data you're going to get and why the business strategy behind it getting you know linking up databases from a from literally a tech perspective um, but also linking up different departments the marketing department with the analysis department with the you know 
what would you, I'm sure it's not just one thing that needs to sort of change, but what would you say is a sort of maybe the biggest sticking point when it comes to maybe the more traditional businesses or the businesses that don't already have really thorough data expertise within um, from being able to transform into one that's using data at the root of experience? The biggest thing that we've seen, actually this is an Adobe thing, so the... Um you know, the back office wave, the front office wave, and now the experience wave. So three waves of enterprise technology. And so you think about all that change that's happened within a business, the amount of business change that's needed within people and process, as opposed to the technology is the thing that really seems to hold people back. So, you did, you know, you might design the best data platform out there. You might have, you know, a great insight team. I think, you know, every man and his dog calls himself a, a data, data scientist, sorry, these days. Whereas actually, you know, there's a certain number of data scientists and there's many other things that you need to be able to do behind the data science to be able to really make it actionable. So the one thing I think that we've seen in major transformation programs that's fallen down is there's not the right operating model in place, there's not the right people, the people need to know what to do on a day-to-day -day basis, they need to also have innovation tracks that are built into the business as usual process so it's not just like we keep our head down for the next three years, that's got to be built in all the time because you know, everyone's seen that Scott Brinker diagram where there's 7,000 marketing technologies out there. How do you keep a grasp on that if you're not con continue trying to innovate? So I think that for me, the the people and the business change element is a thing that always brings down the programs. And the, the really successful ones, actually, the ones where they put that first and they put those people first and they think about not just getting a website or an app live, that is pretty much day one. After that is where you really start you know, making money out of it, but also making sure that your customers benefit from it. And I think that that's the thing that, for me, always always stops it. There are, you know, it's been a real change within the business as we've moved to um, going direct to consumer through Adobe.com, one of the largest uh, e-commerce sites. And that's meant lots of changes within our business. And, you know, we are a bit of a case study for that, but we'll talk openly about some of the things that we've had to do, like bringing in some of those data scientists, because a few years ago, you know, those roles were, were very rare within marketing. They were much more yeah. focused on other sectors. And it's been uh, over the last few years, we've seen some of the, you know, the the salaries, but also the the challenges, the kind of the intellectual challenge from from marketing use cases actually appeal to those people and bring them into, you know, into these kind of teams in these sort of industries um, and move towards the idea of always on campaigns where, you know, previously we would have created a campaign, run it, got some results at the end of it, maybe scratched our heads around had that worked or not and, yeah. you know, possibly use some of that learning to move into the next campaign to this idea of we can put something live, we can get that real-time instant feedback and we can then, you know, while that campaign's in flight, we can actually make changes to the creative, changes to the way that we're messaging it to make sure that we're getting the optimal um, experience. So um, where I'm going with this is what we're now talking about is, um, and, and we've been using this term data-driven marketing for, for a number of years now, but we're actually we're now talking about the data-driven operating model. And that's across the entire business. And I think this comes back to Lee's point around you've got to have buy-in from everyone across the business. All these different departments is not just a marketing thing. It's not just a sales thing. It needs to come from the top down, but everyone in the organization needs to buy in. But you also need the tools um, to actually you know, facilitate this. So that means, you know, the the dashboards that are going to show you the data and having the trust in your employees that they can have access to that information and actually, you know, make changes and decisions based on it. And it is a good use case because it transcends across different industries. So you go to FMCG, where they've always sold through retailers or Amazon, and now they've all got direct-to-consumer strategies. And 
what's the first thing that they did? I mean, one of the first things that Adobe did is they bought an analytics business and then they bought a content business and they started kind of building up this enterprise practice, but they started with the data. And that's like the, the most important thing. They started with the data and then they started to build from there. And that's what most businesses are doing when they're trying to compete with the status quo. But going back to the original point, they reacted to the, the industry practices that were going on and they changed their business strategy. And that businesses that haven't done that, we've all seen, you know, blockbusters and all those types of things, but businesses that haven't done that and constantly gone back and assess where they're going and if it's working and doing proper SWOT analysis and pestle five for, you know, classic MBA stuff. But if you don't do it on a regular basis, you're going to fall behind. What do you guys think about um, voice and the role that's going to be? Because that's a whole other data collection um, kind of almost word exercise um as well as a privacy one i mean that's the reason i don't have alexa in my house because i don't like the idea of it constantly being on not that i'm saying anything weird or anything hopefully but you know how how do you guys think about that from a brand perspective is it something brands should be you know should they have a, a voice strategy yeah um, absolutely yeah okay. definitely i mean um Lee gave some kind of quite surprising stats on investments in in AI. We actually did a piece of research um, uh, towards the end of last year, which said that 91% of business decision makers surveyed are making significant investments in voice. Um, 91? 91%, which I think is pretty high. You know, you need to look at obviously the makeup of that and, you know, what types of industry they were actually involved in. But the major use cases are commerce related at the moment, yeah. you know. Um, 29% of those people who already invested have invested in commerce type um, you know, uh, capabilities. So the ability to make a purchase, the ability to reorder something once it has gone you know, below a certain stock level, um, the ability to find out more information about you know, products specifically are, are the kind of the, the, the key areas. Um, so commerce is going to, I think, is going to continue to be a, a key part to play. I, again, looking at this, um, Google, Apple... Facebook, Microsoft have pledged between them to invest something like $5 billion in the next few years, specifically in voice um, and voice assistance. So regardless of what you think of the kind of the current state and the current situation mm. with, um, uh, you know, with when it comes to voice, we're going to see some major advances over yeah. the next few years. Wearables and voice, I think, is quite a big crossover. So there's um, voice glasses now, so sports glasses, so you can ask for your heart rate, you can ask to uh, call your coach you can ask for all sorts of things and you'll see them uh, i think oakley actually do a pair of those and so yeah so you've got this voice uh, iot and then you know wearable technology and it's kind of all getting mixed around in the fact that they can all collect really really personal data on people mm. and how it's going to work i'm still not entirely sure to be mm. honest and i don't think anybody is people are just investing knowing that something's going to happen and you know particularly the the wearables versus um versus voice you know, nowadays within wearable technology, you can get money off your insurance premiums by doing a certain number of steps. If you'd have gone back a few years ago, that would be insane. And actually, when the first smartwatches came out, they came out to pretty low fanfare. People were pretty disappointed. Now you see Apple watches everywhere. You see, you know, you see all sorts of wearable technology, you see Garmin's. So that shows that that market for me is nowhere near done, and it's mm. nowhere near where it needs to be. So, so the fact that it's it's growing, but it's got so much more to grow means that people need to be investing in it. I want to I want to round off this discussion with a little chat about um 
responsibility because I think that's something that tends to get lost a little bit I mean you mentioned there just to, to pick up on something you said you said um they're they're investing in beacons just because it means they can talk about it which you know makes sense from a marketing perspective but does that really make sense from a you know privacy perspective or from a perspective of doing something that may eventually have bad outcomes if you're doing it purely for marketing and not for you know real world use how can brands think a little bit bigger beyond we want to try and sell this thing and here are the tech here are the different technologies out there that allow us to do that how can we think a bit broader i I actually think some brands are doing that so i think some brands generally try to um to make sure that they are not just thinking about selling things, they are thinking about the broader thing. I think uh, Microsoft did a really good uh, advertising campaign where all of their technology use cases are around, you know, helping impoverished farmers and stuff like that. And for me, that is obviously pushing some technology, but it's also showing that it can do good. Mm. Um, it maybe doesn't solve the privacy, and that is actually, a, you know, it's a concern of a lot of people, but it's a concern of, of mine in the fact that you've got... Most of the businesses that have most of the data in the world are you you know have it for monetization purposes. Whereas if you went back forty years or something like that, it was a lot of governments that had it, and they weren't looking to necessarily do the things that those businesses are trying to do with them. So that's that's a concern, and we've seen you know open data initiatives where businesses are coming together to make sure they're actually trying to do the right thing by the consumer. But in the back of my mind, I've still got that consumer pat on where I think, well, actually, is that happening because they're trying to get market share or they're trying mm-hmm. to be able to push some products? So I think we'll have to see it play out and hopefully there'll not be some Armageddon down the road that we don't know about. But the you know the ethical responsibility on businesses is definitely, is definitely the top of a lot of people's agenda, but I, I really haven't seen it being solved yet. I just see pockets of it doing well. And I say the concern is that it's in the hands of people who it didn't used to be in the hands of. And I think that's that's my worry. I totally subscribe to the fact that the control is in the hands of the consumer these days. And the way in which the the expect I'm coming back to the original point, the expectation that they have for their engagement with a brand should absolutely dictate how that brand shows up, how that brand um you know where that brand shows up the the social channels increasingly um you know new social channels are being used in ways that the originators of the platform never even you know considered and brands are i guess scrabbling to try and make sure that they're represented in a relevant way on that particular platform it often i think i i there are numerous examples of where it just appears incredibly inauthentic for a brand to try yeah. and appear in a certain way on a social, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a social platform or a, you know an emerging um, technology, and they've they've messed it up, uh, you know, quite um, horrifically. So I, I, I mean, I don't want to be you know, deliberately contrarian on that, but I think that um, actually I still subscribe. Uh, maybe I'm being naive, but I do definitely subscribe to the fact that the consumer is the one who's dictating and has the real power still in you know in in the relationship with the brand. The the brand does have the responsibility to to use the data that they're collecting in a you know in an, in an open and transparent way. You know we talk about this idea of you must be uh, post GDPR, but even really you know the the principles that you applied before GDPR, you should have been doing this. You should have been open with the with a consumer about what data you were going to collect, why you were collecting it, how you were storing it, and what good or what use you were going to put that data um, to. And nothing you know, nothing's changed since um, you know GDPR or with any of these kind of emerging technologies. You still have to be true to that promise that you're making to the consumer yeah. about how you're going to engage. And it depends what you're comparing it to, right? So we're talking about being able to skew personal bias and skew you know customer behavior 
Whereas if you go back 30 years, it was still media and it was actually a little bit more kind of specific sometimes because there was less outlets for it. So now there's more and more information. So there's is because there's more information you can, yes, you can change trends, but equally you could have done it through less channels beforehand. So actually there's kind of a, I don't know, an ethical problem of, is it better to give consumers more information? Absolutely. Do we need to make sure that you are upholding the right values whilst you're doing it? But is it better than where we were 10, 15, 30 years ago, I actually think it is because there is more consumer choice, there is more availability, particularly in some countries and some countries there isn't. But it shows that if a consumer does want to find the right answer, there's more information. They don't have to go read a book or read a paper. They can go online, they can talk to you know influencers, they can do all sorts of things which you couldn't do previously. But the privacy you know, the privacy piece off the part off the back of that is you know, people still have to have the right values. And I don't think there's enough business strategies out there where privacy is built in mm. just because um, just because it's the right thing to do. I think it's built in because the brand equity and the brand value will yes. take such a nosedive yes. off the back of some type of bad PR. Sure. So I, d- I do think it is, you know, slightly self-centered in that regard. But, you know, they're, they're businesses. That's what they're there to do. And if it's for the good of the consumer at the end of the day, then at yeah. least it's being done. OK, let's um let's finish with a little bit of... um actionable stuff then for for those who are listening so taking the conversation as a whole that we've just had um everything from what's been driving the experience economy through to kind of getting deep on how we really think about data through to a little bit of responsibility at the end here and new technologies what would you say is the sort of the core thing for those listening to take away um if they were to ask themselves a question how do i make my business more ready or more um kind of currently active um thinking about building an experience to what they're doing i'd say my main takeaway would be that be open to change as much as possible it's changing at such a rate and the right businesses that are doing the right way are changing like like never before so i think businesses that will look to actively go around silos break them down all those bits and pieces internally to deliver the best thing for the consumer and make sure the consumer journey or the customer journey is at the center of everything they do so if we're talking about this experience economy there's a few different ways to break it down but really there's the you know there's a customer journey all the touch points within it and then the environment with which a customer will see that but if you've if you've managed all of that effectively, then there's actually more opportunity for you as a business to be able to to engage with that customer, monetize it, and all those all those kind of good things that you're doing it for in the first place. It will also have the opportunity for the customer to be delighted along the way and feel that they've got, you know, they've got something good out of the brand as well. We're a technology company, but we also say don't just invest in the latest shiny technology. We've talked about some areas where we think today where we think that there are you know some good applications potentially on the experience, but use the data to actually help you understand where you should be present an old example now but we saw a lot of investment in you know native mobile apps when they first came out but actually people weren't necessarily ready to start engaging with brands on that particular platform at that time so much of that you know original initial investment was wasted now it's become much more prominent you know makes sense but you could have used the data to tell you that actually people didn't want to engage with you on that particular channel amazing guys lee jamie thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today You've been listening to The Experience Makers, a Cognified podcast. You can follow us at Cognified on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram, or you can visit us at Cognified.com. Make sure you look out for next month's episode. We're going to continue the experience conversation and continue bridging the marketing technology divide.